Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Tomorrow is primary day in California. And in two of the state's biggest cities, things are looking weird. Today, a new poll was released by our media partners at the San Francisco Standard, showing that the district attorney will have an uphill fight to keep his job. In San Francisco, they're trying to get rid of the district attorney that they just voted in a couple years ago. He's the city's, quote, progressive prosecutor. Then in Los Angeles... We have a bunch of issues in the city, like crime and homelessness and corruption in City Hall, that need to be fixed. And I believe I have the skill set to fix them. They're voting for a Democratic candidate for mayor. And one of the frontrunners is a guy who some voters have described as a secret Republican. Obviously, this is an extremely blue state. Democrats really hold every office across much of the state. Scott Wilson is a senior national correspondent for The Post based in California. The way California's two most influential cities are thinking about the condition of those cities. Both are very troubled places, very angry electorates, sort of taking their anger out on Democratic leadership. Both of these really capture how Democrats are trying to wrestle with big social problems and stay true to their values of compassion for homeless, do no harm to people addicted to drugs, and yet are those problems getting solved? And as Californians wait to hear election results on Tuesday night, Scott has been thinking a lot about this question. Are there limits to liberal politics, even in one of the most liberal states in the country? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 6th. Today, we're looking at this election in California to see how Democrats across the country are testing the viability of their beliefs and whether the core voters in their base might be losing patience with more liberal ideas. So let's start with this mayor's race in L.A., Who is the current mayor, and what is the public perception of how his administration is handling things? Sit, sit, please. Sit, sit. How's everybody doing? So the current mayor is Eric Garcetti, who was a real rising star in the Democratic Party early in his tenure. You see, my family's story begins in Los Angeles humbly. One side of my family crossing oceans and a continent to flee persecution in Poland and Russia, the other crossing a river escaping war in Mexico, both looking for a better life. He's also waiting for his nomination to be ambassador to India to be taken up Mm. by the Senate. It's sort of on hold there. He's leaving very unpopular. COVID, he had big things to say, how he could use COVID really to remake the city, reimagine different ways of getting around the city, rethinking housing, and not much materialized. 
it was kind of, uh, he just did sort of a slow fade. So he's leaving with a very angry electorate and Democrats are paying the price for that. And tell me about some of those candidates who seem to be um, poised to, to potentially replace Garcetti. It's an interesting collection. There's basically three that are really in contention. Two are the most likely. Congresswoman Karen Bass, who was on the short list to be President Biden's running mate. You know, our harsh sentencing laws locked people up for extreme amounts of time and then passed laws that continued to punish them once they got out. Six-term congresswoman came up through L.A. organizing and activism, particularly in South Los Angeles, economic development programs, would be the first African-American woman to run the city. And it looked like she was really going to be a lock about six months ago. In comes Rick Caruso. I've been a centrist my whole life. So I was a Republican, then I left the Republican Party. I believe that the great way to govern is down the middle. I'm tough on crime. I want to give people personal freedoms, how to live their life, social issues. Who is a billionaire real estate developer and has been active in the city for quite some time on commissions, built some very popular shopping malls, very upscale. And he was a Republican up until about 10 years ago, thought about running for mayor, switched to no party preference, and really became a Democrat this year. Oh, wow. So when I say the Democrats are the ones taking the blames, I think everyone's really kind of looking at him as a Republican in many ways. Mm. He's shown no affinity for the party or a lot of its policies. I should note, Crusoe has also spent $25 million of his own money uh, to boost his um, name recognition. Oh, wow. It's about lived experience. It's about letting Los Angeles know that they're not alone, that they know that they can have the mayor, the next mayor of Los Angeles, know what housing insecurity feels like. And then the third candidate is a councilman, Kevin DeLeon. I can remember as a young child when we would hear that knock on the door by the landlord demanding his rent, and my mother would, you know, take her finger to her lips and say, shh, callense todos. He's a very accomplished politician, was president of the state senate, And it seemed to be sort of a Karen Bass versus Kevin DeLeon race until Caruso got in a few months ago. So so I'm curious, you know, those issues that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation and angst around rising crime rates or homelessness or other kind of issues around the condition of a city or the way that people feel that their city is changing. How is that playing a role in this race? Like, how are these three candidates navigating those questions or what are they promising to voters to change the state of Los Angeles? A lot of it is tone. So Rick Caruso is promising a lot more police officers. And in the post-George Floyd moment, A year ago, that would have been unheard of. He'd like to put 1,500 more police officers on the street. Even Karen Bass is saying, I want to shift a couple hundred more people from desk jobs to the streets. And so she runs into trouble with progressives in Los Angeles on that front. And then there's homelessness. What do you do with encampments? It's illegal currently to clear an encampment of homeless people unless they have a place to go. And right now they don't have a place to go. Mm -hmm. And so Kevin DeLeon has gotten into trouble for calling on more clearance, again, from the progressive wing. The dynamic really is you've got progressives who don't have a home, who feel that they're not really being represented. They're certainly not going to vote for Rick Caruso. And you have Caruso with a message of Caruso can. If that echoes a former president of ours, he doesn't want to be associated with Donald Trump. He doesn't agree with him. He says he's not a Trumpist by any means. 
And yet a lot of his tone is, I alone can solve this. Mm, And right now you have, you've just got a lot of Angelinos saying, I'm tired. I'm tired of it. And I'm willing to try something new. One thing that I, I was telling to me was a young Latino activist was telling me about his parents who voted Democrat their entire lives he's pretty convinced they're going to vote for Caruso. Hmm. They do not like what they see on the streets. They don't like the direction of the city. And it would just been unheard of a year or so ago. And now he says, I don't have much of an argument for him. This is purely anecdotal, but I was in L.A. a couple months ago and I didn't rent a car, so I was taking lots of taxis and Ubers everywhere. And I talked to drivers and it was absolutely not even the number one, but really the only thing that they would talk about was the issue of homelessness and what to do with encampments and how frustrating it was for them and for people in the city who feel like it's that they don't feel safe or that they don't feel like they can navigate their city in in a way that they want to. And this is a city where voters twice since 2016 have voted to tax themselves in ballot referendums Mm. to raise more than a billion dollars for homeless programs and see no results. And Karen Bass is very in tune with this and says, no wonder they're frustrated. People need housing. They need temporary housing immediately. I do think that there's just some things that you don't do on the street and sleeping is one of them. However, and so I think just a lot of those voters are saying, I don't really know what we're going to get with Caruso. I know he's kind of a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I don't really care at this point. Hmm. And and what do you think is at stake here politically for L.A.? I mean, if Caruso were to win, what kind of message does that send to both for folks in the city and even folks outside the city or across the country who have been calling for these measures of, you know, let's not invest more in police or let's think about alternative ways to deal with criminal justice reform and problems like homelessness or otherwise? You know, not to use too much of a cliche, but I mean, it'll be a huge wake-up call to the Democratic Party Hmm. about practicality versus ideology. And there will be a lot of attention on whether Caruso can pull any of this off. He'll be dealing with most likely a quite left-wing city council regardless. And the mayor in LA really needs the city council. It's a weak mayor system. So you really rely on the council for consensus. But I think it's a, you know, it'll be a time for the Democrats to sort of think about some of these policies and whether or not they're actually listening to what people are saying. That's what I hear time and again in Los Angeles and in other parts of the state is Democrats just don't seem to be listening to me. Mm. They're not understanding that we are afraid that, yes, crime rates are much lower than they were 20 years ago. But it doesn't mean that we're not afraid and that we don't want more security. I walked around with someone in Oakland recently, a city councilman in the Fruitvale District, a, a pretty rough spot. And he looked at me and said, does this look like a neighborhood that needs fewer police? Mm. And so I know that's shallow. And it, again, it's anecdotal. But almost everyone I talked to in that neighborhood said, why would we want fewer police? I do understand the argument about over-policing and over-incarceration. Yet, I think that a Caruso win and some successes mm-hmm. will kind of force Democrats nationally and certainly in the state to think, are we doing this right? Are we listening enough? And are we saying the right things? After the break, the surprising recall effort in San Francisco. 
We'll be right back. So, Scott, let's talk about this recall effort in San Francisco. Who is the district attorney there and why are voters trying to get him out of office? So the district attorney in San Francisco's name is Chesa Boudin. He's 41 years old, has a fascinating personal background. When he was just a little over a year old, his parents, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, were involved in an infamous Brinks truck robbery in a New York City suburb. Good evening. Echoes of the violent radical underground of the 1960s rolled over the New York suburb of Nanuet today in the botched ambush of an armored car that left one guard and two policemen dead. They were members of what's called the Weather Underground, which was a radical FBI-characterized domestic terrorist organization, very left-wing, anti-imperialist ideology. So as a baby, his parents go to jail for decades. His mother was released in 2003. His father was released last year. And his mother just recently died. He was raised by a man named Bill Ayers, who was the founder of the Weather Underground. So Chesa is a far to the left. He's what's known as a progressive prosecutor. The basic philosophy is we put way too many people in jail. They tend to be people of color by a huge overproportionate number of blacks and Latinos in jail. He is interested in diversion programs. He really thinks hard about charging, adding on penalties for gun possession, crimes committed with guns, things like that. And he was elected two years ago, formally of the public defender's office. So his sort of frame of mind, especially according to his critics, is we basically have a prosecutor who's a public defender. And that's not quite fair, but that is the perception. And can I ask, has has he been successful at some of those problems that I think many people agree are problems of too many people in prisons, those people are disproportionately people of color? They, and What I would say is he was elected at a time again, right, two years ago, when those were the most salient issues that a lot of particularly progressive San Franciscans were worried about. COVID changed all that. Crime rose, especially property crimes. Homicides are a little up. Violent crime is about the same. It's a mixed bag whether he's been successful. And he has certainly diverted more people charged into programs than he has to incarceration. And so the numbers are kind of tell two stories. What the debate is, is he making the right choices about those programs? And there's always like the case that stands out. A hit-and-run suspect is in custody after killing two pedestrians in San Francisco. So he didn't charge a 46-year-old man who had a couple of crimes and a history running up to the fact that on New Year's Eve he was using alcohol and methamphetamine, crystal meth, and ran a red light and killed two people. San Francisco's District Attorney Chesa Boudin says SFPD did not notify parole in McAllister's most recent arrest, and Daly City Police did so not So for San Franciscans, that becomes the story, right? If only Chesa Boudin would have charged this guy, as most prosecutors would have, this wouldn't have happened. And you mentioned crime rates here obviously being a big issue for a lot of these voters, but that there are questions around what the rising crime rates actually mean and how much right. we should read into them. And I mean, I think the conversation that, that I hear a lot is that, yes, crime in many cities across the country might be 
slightly or somewhat increased from a few years ago, but still so much lower than they were perhaps in the 80s or 90s. And therefore, like, we need to look at this with a more measured perspective. Like, things really aren't that bad and people need to chill. I mean, is that a fair way of looking at it? Or what are are you seeing in these numbers? It's very much part of the debate here. The debate here is about the nature of crime, when to start measuring crime rates, and who's to blame. Hmm. So, COVID did change things, particularly around property crime. As you said, homicide rates and violent crime rates are are way down from where they were. They've crept up a bit here and there over the last two years, but there hasn't been some surge in violence. Mobs of looters storming and ransacking high-end stores in the San Francisco area. But you get things like a giant flash mob robbery in Union Square, San Francisco, last November, smash and grabbing all the, you know, right in the middle of the tourist district. Mm -hmm. People think the city's out of control. It's these almost big symbolic crimes that have come to define parts of this race. You know, but I walked around with Chesa the other day through the Mission District, a part of the city that he really needs a lot of people to turn out. And he had a lot of support there, but he also had people come up to him who I think are going to vote against the recall, at least they said they were, but said, my car's been broken into three times this year. What are you going to do about it? And part of the criticism of Chesa is his tone, which can come off sometimes as, look, crime's part of life. You know, it's always been part of life in San Francisco. And so let's talk about important things like over-incarceration and the fairness of the criminal justice system. People can do both those things, but you start to get the idea, right? It's, yeah, I I get it, but my storefront, I I can't get windows for it because of the supply chain problems, and now I have boards over it. You don't really seem to care. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he he would obviously dispute that, but his messaging can often come off as, you know, that's, that's life. But how exactly does this recall work and what are the chances that this DA will in fact be recalled? And and if he is, then like what is who are they going to put in his place, right? This is still going to be a very liberal city and it's hard for me to imagine what a prosecutor would look like who is not this person but is still going to be progressive enough to be voted into office. So how it works just practically speaking is If more than 50% of people who turn out on June 7th vote to recall him, then he's going to be recalled. It's not like the Gavin Newsom recall of last year where then they have a choice Mm -hmm. on the same ballot of who to replace him. Mayor London Breed will appoint his replacement until the next election. There are people involved in the recall who want the job. And so that's part of a Boudin campaign's, you know, argument is, look, there's vested interests here. As far as, you know, what the big shift is going to look like, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it will it be largely in tone? Will there be fewer diversions? Will there be tougher charges against people who, you know, the gun crimes? Will there be a, a fentanyl task force? Things like that, you know, around the edges. But the philosophy is still going to be largely, let's be careful about who we're incarcerating and how we're charging. So... There'll be differences. And again, it's going to be a tough job for whoever gets it because he has taken so much heat for sort of all the city's woes. They're going to expect someone to come in and and really clean it up. To your other question, it does not look good for him. Not a single poll shows him doing particularly well. Voting's already underway. And when he won in the first place, 
a lot of his votes came on the day of the election. So that's why he's really running around the streets right now, getting people to turn out on that day. And his opponents are optimistic, but they also say, you know, it could change on election day. What do you think the message would be if he were not recalled? And in L.A., if candidate Karen Bass were to win? I mean, in a world where the more progressive body of voters, more progressive, Mm -hmm. an already progressive body of voters um, is able to win in these elections. I mean, do you think that there is a bigger takeaway there that these calls for criminal justice reform and for rethinking how we do law enforcement and crime prevention that like that those calls actually have staying power? I think when it comes to Los Angeles in a Karen Bass victory, I think it will say less than if Tessa Boudin survives the recall. I think if he survives the recall, he will take it and many progressives will take it as a mandate. Hmm. We're on the right track. Are we perfect? No. But this is definitely the way the city wants to go here is for me to concentrate on these big issues about putting too many people in prison and overcharging. The Karen Bass victory, just the numbers alone in L.A., and because she is not running as progressive as Chesa Boudin does unapologetically, I think means a little bit less. I don't know if Democrats will look at that and say, we nailed this from the start, told you so. I think the Caruso thing already has kind of jolted the party and pushed Bass a, a bit to the center as well. My impression is, is that when, especially when we talk about things like um reaction to crime or calls for politicians to respond to increases or decreases in in crime rates, that it's kind of like a pendulum swinging, right? Is that like crime gets worse, people, voters want more police, more police come in, and people complain about over-policing and people landing up in, in prison, I think rightfully. But that there's just this endless back and forth. I mean, do you see what's happening now as part of that swing that happens every few years? Or do you feel like there's... Very much so. Really? Yeah, very much so. It's particularly pronounced in California. This state sort of pioneered the three strikes laws back in the early 90s, absolutely filled the prisons Mm. uh, to the point where the Supreme Court had to intervene and demand that 33,000 inmates be released. Then in 2014, there was a ballot measure that lessened sentences, recategorized some felonies as misdemeanors. So it went totally the other way. And now here we are back again with we're worried about crime. There's this constant movement here, especially given our the strange politics of the of the kind of ballot measure that gets used so often, you know, that really measures public opinion, right? Trying to get this balance right between extreme punitive measures and too lenient. But it you're exactly right. It's this state just trying to work out right what the right balance is. Mm. And what really needs to be punished, what deterrence really means, and what over-incarceration and unfairness means. But I think that for people who felt like two years ago and George Floyd and that the, you know, that there was something existential that happened there and reframing how we think about mass incarceration and reframing how we think about law enforcement. I mean, I think a lot of people will feel sad or frustrated at the sense of like, well, that's just a passing phase as all of these are, and that there was no profound change or at least lasting change in how Americans view their responsibilities in thinking about like incarceration and, and law enforcement. I think that's Chesa Boudin's base right there. And it's why Los Angeles progressives are frustrated by their choices. Mm. 
because that moment seems to be lost, their candidates not talking about it, you know, nearly to the degree that they'd like to. And so suddenly it's, well, I'm not going to put as many police on the streets as Rick Caruso is, and I, I really do believe in reform. That's just not doing it for a city that really kind of erupted after the George Floyd moment. Even in Oakland, across the bay from where I am, they've been working on these issues for 30 years. And George Floyd was going to be the moment. It was really going to happen. Big shift in funding from the police into social programs and and community projects. It's not happening. Their homicide rate really is spiking. And people feel unsafe. And so it's just, you talk to activists in a lot of these cities, and they say it's leadership. They're just, the leadership is not what they would hope it would be on these issues. Mm. It's just not brave enough on the progressive side to say, hey, look, let's not go back and forth and back and forth. We saw, we have a moment, let's change things. And that's Boudin's message, stay with this. And the message isn't quite as loud down in Los Angeles. Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. Scott Wilson is a senior national correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon with help from Arjun Singh. It was edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>